box. Record collections and recollections. Out of the box with Mia Hull on FBI Radio. Hey, Mia Hull here, streaming online via the podcast or live on your radio from 12 to 1 p.m. This is Out of the Box. Every week, I sit down with one guest and take a wander through the stories and songs that have shaped their life. Today, I'm broadcasting from FBI's studio in Redfern, and my guest is joining me from the comfort of his home. Each of us are coming to you from Gadigal country, so I'd like to take this moment to pay my respects to Gadigal elders past, present and emerging, and acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded. Today, I'm joined by Brendan Cowell. Brendan is a master storyteller, a skill that's shown its face in his acting, directing, writing and poetry. You might know him as the guy from the film Noise and he was in Love My Way and Yes Now in the Avatar sequel or sequels. It's an epic trilogy. But Brendan is a writer as much as he is an actor. His 11 plays have been produced around the world and he's put his name to many acclaimed TV series and books too. Most recently, his book Plum, which hit shelves this past week. Today, we're going to talk about Plum as well as the many other stories that have shaped Brendan Cowell and play some of the songs that have soundtracked the big moments. Thank you so much for joining me on the show today, Brendan. Oh, pleasure, Mia. Thanks for um, thanks for having me in. Let's dive straight into Plum. That's the most recent iteration of your storytelling. Yeah. Can you start by briefly running me through what the book is about? I absolutely can. Uh, Plum is about a man called Peter Lum. Uh, he's a 49-year-old ex-footy player and Plum was his kind of nickname, uh, footy name playing name. It's what everybody knows knows him by. He lives in Cronulla with his 16-year-old son and his girlfriend. Uh, and everything's just kind of cruising by. He works at the airport, dragging planes out. He didn't go into the media after footy. Um, and he's a pretty full-on bloke. He drinks hard, he played hard, and everything's always been under the motto his father gave him of never take a backward step. And then one day, you know, at the airport, he has an epileptic fit and... Um, nearly drags a plane into another plane, nearly kills a plane full of people. He finds out he has a degenerative brain injury, uh, which could lead to dementia, CTE, possibly death. He has to change, um, or he has to change the way he lives, which is not having four to 14 schooners every Arvo, not going hard on the punt, on the rest of it, you know, all the business that men um, like to drown their feelings in. Um, meanwhile, his son wants to follow in his footsteps, um, this all leads to a crisis, you know, kind of suicidal ideations. And luckily he is visited upon um, by some poets uh, who are no longer, some dead poets, um, as he discovers um, via a, a poetry night at a local pub, um, a passion for the written word. So it's kind of about, and he and through that, he, he begins a journey of self-reflection and growth. Um, and there's a possibility he could save himself from himself. Uh, so it's kind of a smash up of the two notions of masculinity in this country, the sensitive poet guy and the um, beer swilling thug. And I smashed those two ideas together and come up with one man called Plum. Was there something that made you want to tell Plum's story? Well, yeah, I mean, absolutely. Uh, I probably wouldn't have done it, but um, I, I, there wasn't a kind of an incident. I, I mean, a lot of other things like Reuben Guthrie and such has more been, um, you know, directly from my life. But 
I wanted to get back to, I wanted to write another book and I wanted to get back to why do I write? Why am I creative? You know, I'd had a bit of luck with Avatar, I had a bit of money in the bank and I wanted to write something. I was finding television frustrating um, with the way they approach dramaturgy um, and quite unhealthy. And so I thought I want to write something literary. And then I thought about what started me as a writer and that was poetry writing poetry since I was 12, to make sense of the world, to make sense of being bullied, to make sense of feeling like an imposter, you know, which I did, a, a crazy, uh, over, you know, oversensitive, creative in a sports and surfing town like Cronulla. Um, poetry saved my life. And then I thought, who would be the last person on earth to be saved by poetry? Um, and I came up with this brute yeah. called Peter Lum. That that's interesting that you'd say Ruben Guthrie drew from your experiences and that Peter Lum doesn't do that so much, even though, you know, it's a guy from Cronulla who is into poetry. I guess a bigger conversation here, and you touched on it briefly, is about the beer swilling Aussie bloke and the male psyche and the way that we talk about mental health issues in this country. It seems to be a conversation that we hear more and more lately. Did having that conversation appear more and more maybe impact the way that you wrote this book? Yeah, I, I think so. And, you know, I've made some changes in my life coming into my 40s. You know, you just can't get away with it anymore. Um, not only your body can't take the way you live, but also your family and your friends can't. And there just comes a point where you just need to grow up, and it often happens later for men. Um, but for Plum, if he doesn't grow up, he's going to die. Uh, and and I, I kind of I look at a lot of ex-athletes and ex-artists and ex-anything and you think there's a, there's a second go at life that I think, you know, you do your youth, which is all about yourself um, and giving yourself stuff and your dreams and, and, and fill in the tank. And you have your kids or you don't. Um, and then you get to this age and you go, what the fuck do I do now? Um, and that's what I wanted to kind of embrace and say to men, you know, maybe that doesn't have to be 10 beers a day, get overweight, punt your money away and don't and disconnect from your family. Maybe it could be something else. Maybe you could become someone else. Maybe you could do the second half of your life different to the first, try something else. And Plum's greatest difficulty is sharing, sharing the fact that he's scared, sharing the fact that this thing might come and get him. Um, and I can definitely relate to that. And, you know, we only get one crack at life and there's no point repeating the same mistakes, you know. And so I kind of, I wanted to write, not a cautionary tale, but I wanted to write what causes men to just shut down um, and, and that to those toxic behaviours to come out. What, let's get to the heart of it. You mentioned before that you chose Plum as a former NRL player because it was the furthest thing that you could get from, you know, someone who was a little bit more in touch with that side of themselves. Are you familiar with what it means to be an NRL player? Did you have to do a lot of research in the process of building that character? Well, not really, no, because I played rugby league till I was 16. I am the Cronulla Sharks' number one ticket holder. I work in rugby league radio. I've had my own rugby league talk show, um, so I've been in the in the in the industry and in the league, you know, for my whole life, really. Um, and some of my best mates are, are ex players, um, 
and I still box. I box with a lot of footy players. So I probably spend more time in that world than I do in the theatre circles. Um, I also find the conversation much more interesting than I do in the theatre circles where everyone's just trying to not be offensive and say the same thing. And it's the same with being in the suburbs. You know, you get better stories and you get free thinking in the suburbs because people aren't so caught up with trying to be impressive and, and trying not to offend each other. You get truly radical thinking. And this is what, you know, the, this is what happens in suburbia and this is who these people are. The ordinary people, I think, are, are, are extraordinary. Um, but no, these are my uncles, this is my dad, this is me, this are my best mates. And there's no... Uh, there's no research to be done there. The, the, the only research I kind of had to do was in his job, but my uncle works at the airport and so do a lot of ex-players um, and in neuroscience. Uh, and I, I, um, you know, I worked with a guy called Chris Levi who was really helpful um, and Andrew Johns, the eighth immortal. You might not know the eighth immortal. Um, he played for the Knights and he was really generous in filling me in on the experience of, of concussion seizures. Um, and as they're portrayed in the book, they're kind of like a return to innocence. Um, and that's where the idea of the otherworldly things like the dead poets came in, was through the open doors of concussion and seizure. Yeah, I, I guess there are these big parts of it that we might not all be familiar with, like the neuroscience side of things, but despite that, it sounds like a story that a lot of us can relate to, yeah. particularly men. Um, and so I'll, I'll put links to that one up on the programs page on fbiradio.com. So if anyone does want to find Brendan Cowell's latest book, Plum, that'll be a place to grab it. In talking about this book, I feel like the last 10 minutes have been dotted with little snippets of your life, and we're going to spend the rest of the show talking about those parts of your life, Brendan. But first, you've chosen a song by Lenny Kravitz to play on the show. Yes. Tell me about this one. This is a funky track from Lenny Kravitz. Um, I, it's called Always on the Run, which is um, what Plum is. He keeps running from his problems, so I thought this was a good one to discuss, Plum. And also, I remember my mate, my best mate uh, in the world, Johnny Duncan, him and I were obsessed with Lenny Kravitz, and I, I think we actually covered this song in our band, and I could play this funky bass line. Um, and we went to the Sydney Entertainment Centre to see Lenny Kravitz, but we got so stoned in my sister's Ford Laser in the car park, we just <laughs> sat there on the chair and we couldn't even move or dance. I just remember like being paralysed because we were so bent out of shape and just watching him and the, that female drummer that he's got. It, it, he's an incredible musician and always on the run is, I think, his best song. On FBI Radio 94.5, it's Lenny Kravitz, as chosen by my guest on Out of the Box today, Brendan Cowell. Always on the run. It was Lenny Kravitz on FBI Radio 94.5. The chooser of that song was my guest on Out of the Box, Brendan Cowell. We just talked about Brendan's latest book, Plum, and now we're going to talk about his life leading up to writing that book. So I want to go back to the very beginning, Brendan. Your life kicks off in Cronulla. Can you paint a picture of what it was like to grow up there? 
Yeah, I mean, it's long afternoons and, and golden retrievers. And I, I grew up in a cul-de-sac. So, you know, after, from 3.30 to 6.30, it was kid chaos. You know, you have climbing trees, cricket games with the stumps out. You have all the girls running through the sprinklers in the swimsuits and you've got people like the the families coming out and parents and having a beer with each other and it's nothing that you see now. Like, it was just glorious. And then the cars would come up, so you've got to move the cricket stumps out of the way. Uh, we also backed onto a reserve, so there was, you know, remote control cars and cubby houses and wild adventures in the bush and on the water at Port Hacking. I grew up in Carrying Bar, Dolan's Bay. Um, and, yeah, it was unreal, like, and and really innocent. And and then, you know, then you turn 13 or 14 and everything goes a bit dark. <laughs> and, you know, especially in the Shire, you know, where a lot of, where most of the stuff is kind of swept under the carpet and hence there's, you know, uh, distorted feelings that come out and a high suicide rate and, um, you know, because the Shire very much hangs on to, um, you know, the women stay at home and the men work and God and, you know, it's, and, and, and it's very white and, and it's changing now. But when I was there, it was kind of tough. But those ages, four to 14, it was kind of like, you know, real life heaven and the beach and, and, and fishing and camping. And um, I've got two elder sisters and they were into dancing and everything and I was into sport and, you know, I wasn't a big swimmy, surfy kid and that put me aside from the culture a little bit. I didn't want to surf. I was afraid of sharks. I wasn't a natural swimmer. Um, but I did play footy and mm. basketball and cricket, you know, so that indoctrinated me a bit. Your sisters are the ones that originally got you into acting. Tell me that story. I was in a waiting room waiting for my sister Jackie, who was in a dance class at Keen Kids in the city. She she went on to be in the pop group Girlfriend. Um, but I was mm. 10 and I was sitting in a room of other blonde-haired, blue-eyed, chubby-cheeked boys. They all like clones and they all went into this little room and popped out. And then when they're all gone with their mums down the stairs, the tall man came out and said, come on, come in here. And mum just let me go into this weird dude's room. And it was a cornflakes commercial. And he said, you know, eat these cornflakes, say this line and then smile while you're eating. And then he went, and I was like, no worries. I can. Do you remember what the line was? I think it was something incredible like... Um, I love cornflakes, <laughs> you know, some kind of incredible line yeah. like that. But I, but then he got me to say it without saying it while I was eating the cornflakes. And he came out, and you know, and he said to me, you've got a good head, son. And I went, yeah, of course. And then he's like, who's your agent? And I went, oh, I don't know, me mum. And he said, you know, you, <laughs> I remember him saying, your son can smile with his eyes, which is very good for us in the food commercial world because we have to get shots of the meeting and know that they're enjoying it. So because um, mm. I could smile with my eyes while I had my face full of cornflakes, I then went on to do Chicken McNuggets ads, Pavlova Magic and all these kind of food commercials. Um, cause I, and, and then I got on the commercial scene, which led to me doing little spots in afternoon television, which led to me going, right, I'm, I'm an actor, you know. Um, so, yeah, I, it was always going to happen, I can see now. I was always making shows up and stuff, but 
um, yeah, that that got me into television. Yeah, you're a child prodigy. It sounds like all of your siblings were working in performance in some way, you know, with, with your sister being in Girlfriend and your sister's dancing and you acting. Was your childhood home a place that fostered this kind of stuff? Yeah, it was. And, and it was a really cherished sanctuary away from a suburb that definitely didn't foster that stuff. I mean, we didn't have drama. You know, we didn't have, mm. we had like a demountable music room, which you could, I don't think it was a subject though, but it was just for the band that played at assembly. And so there wasn't a lot of that. There was no languages. There was no drama. Um, but at home, you know, I, I grew up in the back of mum's Mitsubishi Sigma, you know, picking the girls up from ballet or dancing and doing spelling competitions with mum in the back of the car, you know, and, and mm. I... I would be going from a Stanford to a Stanford watching Jackie and, and often when Jackie would get up and do Gloria Gaynor's I Will Survive, I would be just below the stage at eight years old in my cord pants and singlet doing all the moves and everyone would be looking at me laughing, <laughs> going, look at that kid. But I knew every move. At first I was afraid I was just, you know, and and yeah. <laughs> so I never knew that being creative and, and, and expressing yourself and performing was weird because... That was my house. And mum, mum's eccentric, you know, mum's a nurse, dad was an accountant, but mum's odd and playful. And it was always very silly at our house. And you, you would be getting up and dancing and you would be putting something on your head and making a costume. And, and she fostered that, you know, which I'm grateful for. Yeah, and one of the ways that she fostered that was via Hey, Hey, It's Saturday's Red Faces at Home edition. Tell me about that. Yeah, yeah. Well, Red Faces was with Red Simons would have the big gong um, and it was about Australians getting up on the on the show on Saturday night and kind of embarrassing themselves or some would be a very talented ventriloquist or something. Um, and, yeah, we would have that on Friday night. and and But I would take it pretty seriously and by Friday... I would have like a 20 minute show ready to go and it, and you know and it might well not at the start at the start I would just sing shut up your face or I would just do a little poem or an impersonation of a teacher but they got bigger and longer um the shows and the girls would do a dance you know um so my whole week you know was thinking about my routine and my show and often when I had boys from cricket over on Sunday or Tuesday after training I'd go, you know, do you want to work on the routine? Do you want to work on my show? And they'd be like, <laughs> no, man. I just, like, I just want some lollies and then I'll go home. Like, I just, I play cricket with you. Yeah. I don't want to do a fucking routine. And I'm like, oh, okay, yeah. mate, no worries. No worries, sorry for being weird. Um, you know, and but I did. I was always wanting to work on my show. I was going to ask if many of the kids at your school were into acting and poetry in that way or appearing in these ads. How did that impact your experience of primary school? Not very well. Um, and that was, it was in high school, um, you know, when I was 12 or 13. That, and some of the ads were very big, like Pavlova Magic. I spoke for the whole ad and Crisco Oil and Juices Fruity. And these were big ads and they would get released and they'd be shown, you know, at night... You know, you'd watch 7, 9 or 10. There were no other channels and you'd watch your show. And so it, everyone would be watching the same shows every night. And, you know, no one's streaming Hulu. And and so everyone would see the new ad. The entire school would see the new ad. And then that was it. I'd cop it. You know, whatever the ad was, 
I would year seven to ten would be waiting for me the next morning. They used to moo me when I arrived at school because my name was Cal. So I used to just get mooed. The whole school would go moo when I ran when I arrived at school, and then they would just start doing lines from the ads, and and it was tough. Like some people thought it was cool because they heard I made three thousand dollars or whatever, but most of the kids used it as stuff to, to to bully me really and 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 I was bullied mm. because of that. I feel like now it would be fitting to play Gloria Gaynor's I Will Survive in honour of your childhood, but you've chosen a song by Stone Temple Pilots to play instead. Yeah. Tell me about this one. Well, the the grunge <laughs> period, me, I mean, the greatest period of music, 88 to 93, which is, you know, where I guess a lot of you guys your age are going back and, and discovering because um, you, you see kids in their 20s wearing the Pearl Jam and Nirvana and Smashing Pumpkin Soundgarden T-shirts. But, you know, and it's why my generation is so mental is because we had this music, which meant we just <laughs> went so hard. We left nothing behind. Um, and it was that loud, quiet grunge stuff that just gave us that anger and that angst. And grunge really filled that void in the early 90s. Um, and, you know, this, this music was just how I felt. I felt this passionate, this furious, this angry, and I wanted to fuck shit up. I wanted to get out of Cronulla. I wanted to discover and 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 hearing, you know, this hearing this man's voice. Um, it's just it just taps in to that sadness and that yearning for more and. Um, yeah, incredible song. From the 1992 album Core, this is Stone Temple Pilots on FBI Radio 94.5. The song is called Plush. That was Stone Temple Pilots. The song was called Plush, and you heard it right here on Out of the Box on FBI Radio 94.5. Right now, we are taking a walk through the story of Brendan Cowell's life, which has been dotted with so many things, from playwriting to writing books and, of course, being an actor and a director as well. Where we left things, you were a theatre kid, budding poet and actor in TV commercials who was getting bullied a little bit in school, but you stuck with it. What did your knack for storytelling look like around this time when you were finishing school? What kind of things were you making? I wrote lots of little funny little things, but when I came out of university, I started um, performing in my own poetry around Sydney, especially at Friend in Hand and um, with Tug Dunnelly. And I, I would often have a one hour show um, and I would hold a full pub for an hour with my poetry and have them in stitches. and. And then I went and saw a lot of plays, David Williamson plays, other plays, and I thought, well, this is all a bit stiff and boring and I'm going to write a play, you know. Um, I've got a voice. And I wrote Men, um, which is, you know, a, a dark comedy about the hour before, you know, Backstreet Boys go on stage. But you don't know they're a boy band. They could be sperm or astronauts or gangsters. The play was a big hit, the old Fitzroy. I went to the Belvoir, went to Edinburgh, went to New York, um, and it changed my life. And suddenly everyone was like, 
you know, you're a writer, not an actor who writes. And Were you acting in that play as well, or were you just the writer of that one? I was acting in that play with Toby Schmitz, Blazy Best, Anthony Hayes. Um, I then wrote Happy New. I wrote ATM, Sydney Film Festival. I wrote Rabbit, which won the Griffin Award. I wrote Bed, which was on at Sydney Theatre Company. Um, and I won the Patrick White Award, um, a Griffin Award, all by the time I was 27. Wow. So fresh out of uni, you've just had these huge successes and yeah. these plays being produced overseas. Yeah, yeah. But I I put them on in pubs. I wrote them, got them I worked all day at the Wine Society, 10 to 6, and then I'd rehearse them at night or go on stage at night and I'd work six days a week and then do the plays at night. Um, and I still kind of work like that now. Um, you know, I, I'm still always getting something up, even though I'm in Avatar and writing television shows, I'm still always got that hunger to make my own shit happen. I'm trying to make a low budget feature in January, February, March. It's cause I just, I wanna, I still wanna keep that hunger. And you know, my first play at the old Fitzroy, mum was driving around with A4 printouts and we used our <laughs> own couch and you know, all that stuff. And, and that's the way you learn, you know, to all the young people listening on FBI, make something happen. You know what I mean? Um, don't wait for this, big saviour job to come and get you because I'll tell you one thing it ain't going to happen get in there and make something because that's where you learn Mm. and that's where you get better and I got better in front of a live audience Mm. and I still am getting better in front of a live audience I learnt on the run but yeah putting men on and happy new and they're also the best memories I've ever had Mm. you know Um, I started writing plays for my acting career and then I wrote them you know for human beings you know for for them to have a different, for them to make a difference and, and to stir things up. But I had an incredible run in Sydney and, and that kind of started my career overseas too. Yeah, and later on in the show, I want to talk about the time you've spent overseas because it makes up a huge chunk of your life. But while we're still in your 20s, the common thread here is storytelling and you're just pumping out stories like nothing else. Where do you draw your stories from and has it changed much between now and then? Yeah, I not really. Um probably my craft has got a lot better and my use of language has probably calmed down like I look at men now and I think I just couldn't write like that I wrote how I lived which was you know stone table piles nirvana I lived hard I went Mm. to rave parties and I drank and took a lot of drugs and and then I worked hard as well and you know it was a wild time and so I think now I'm more interested in in crafting a beautiful tale and holding back and with restraint. But the ideas still come from something I'm working out and rarely from something I know, but more from something I don't know. And, you know, my first novel, How It Feels, I wanted to ask the question about why boys don't make it out of their youth in Cronulla. And Reuben Guthrie was about, you know, why has Australia got to take it so personally when someone stops drinking and, you know, is it better to live or drink? and I think in Plum, it's like, how does a man change who's never known another way, you know, and why can't men share? And I've usually got something that I've worked on or I'm working on in myself mm. that I then explore in a big story. And the truth is what hurts people. Your truth is what hurts other people. Um, and so if I'm honest in my storytelling, people will connect. And, you know, I just went to for a power walk with a friend um, she's a gay woman. She lives in the city. She hates rugby league. 
she can't put the book down because mm. she's like, I know those people, I know those relationships. And that's what happens when you're honest. It doesn't matter it, what you're writing. It will, you know, it, it, it will have catharsis for all sorts of people if you're honest. And that's what my work kind of does. But at the other hand, I am trying to get the guy that reads one book a year to read it as well. Um, <laughs> and I've always wanted to kind of open up theatre to the suburbs. I've always, because I hate it when people go, oh, you know, I don't know theatre, I can't go. Oh, I don't read books, so I better not, I'm not smart enough. I, if you've ever had a dream, you can read a book. If you've ever had a dream or a relationship, you can go to the theatre, you know, and that's all you need. The next song you've chosen is by Porter's Head. Yeah. Why did you pick this one? Yeah, I guess talking about getting older into my 20s, starting to go overseas, the trip-hop movement coming out of Manchester with Tricky Massive Attack just blew my mind. And it was when I was getting quite experimental. I mean, when Porter's Head hit, it was like when we first heard Glory Box, Dummy, you pull over and go, what is this noise? Like Max and Key by Tricky, that album, which is, I hadn't heard the noises before. I hadn't heard this sound. And I just love this whole trip hop period and, it kind of summed up university, you know, we lived, we listened to so much of this at university and into my mid-twenties, um, trip hop, yeah, and, and I, I love Rhodes, a beautiful song. And Beth Gibbons' voice, wow. From this You're listening to FBI Radio 94.5 DAB, or if you're streaming via the website or the podcast, that song was called Roads. It was by Porter's Head, and it was chosen by my guest on the show today, award-winning screenwriter, actor, director, author, <laughs> Brendan Cowell. I guess a big theme in your life, Brendan, is moving cities, often without much of a plan. Tell me about that. Why is that important to you? Yes, and look, I'm just today... I- I'm thinking I got to get out of here again. Um, I think I've got a traveller's heart and I'm just already like, well, I've been in Sydney for eight months. And, you know, as I continue to preach to the youth on FBI, go and live overseas Mm -hmm. before you're 32 with that visa because that's where you work out who you are. Um, You know, I think the notion of success is getting a visa and a credit card and a car and a flat overseas. Go and live somewhere else where nothing is familiar, where there is no mum's cooking and there is no, oh, the beach and the cafe and the thing. You've got to, I just, it's been the best thing I've ever done. And, you know, the first time I did it, I did it for love. My girlfriend at the time was working in New York. I'd never been to New York. I moved there for four years. Um, I ended up coming back and forth to do Beneath Hill 60 to play Hamlet. But, you know, I lived in New York for four years and Six years ago, I moved to London with a blue suitcase and a speaker, no agent, and just went, I'm going to give it a crack. And, you know, I ended up on stage, um, the West End off Broadway, ended up in Game of Thrones and ended up, you know, I I became so successful in London. I I got a job in New Zealand um, for the last two years. And that was like a cruel trick. It's like, well done, you're doing so well. Now you've got to go 
you know, <laughs> to the lesser version of Australia um, across the ditch, you know. Um, but, but the yeah, job you're I, talking I'll... about is filming Avatar in New Zealand. That's no small feat. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it, it's a little independent New Zealand movie yeah. called Avatar. Yeah. Yes, about... <laughs> with your friend James Cameron. Yeah, with my friend Jim who shares the same birthday with me and he's a vegan and the catering on Avatar is vegan. So if anyone says, can you tell us something about Avatar? I'll go, the catering was vegan. Okay. There's your little insight. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I, I don't know. I, it's a journey, Nia. Life's a journey and I just find I, the world's spectacular. And if you haven't been to Portugal or Italy or um, Turkey, go, go and have a look. It'll blow your mind. Since the beginning of 2020, travelling hasn't been so much on the cards. And for you, someone who lives overseas almost all the time, what has that meant for you? Well, I've had a bit of a bad run of it because last year, which is where, you know, I'm grateful for it because I wrote Plum. I was I was in lockdown in London for five months. I got the coronavirus, um, not the new fancy Delta Goodrum one. I just got the garden variety Aldi uh, one and um, the original OG, what's up? And that uh, was horrific. You don't want it. I thought I was going to die. Um, but I wrote a book and then I went to New Zealand and I didn't work for a few months in between as they were trying to, you know, shoot out one of the actors. And I couldn't really leave my hotel because I couldn't really go anywhere and I had no friends or family. And then I thought, you know what, I'm going to, I've had enough of this isolation. I've had nearly a year in quarantine. I'm going to come home to Australia and, and, and have some freedom. And then I've been in lockdown for about 16 weeks. Um, so I'm like Wim Hof chasing winter, except I'm chasing isolation wherever I go, you know. So um, I've really got to know myself and I, I feel like I'm ready to extend that into other people's lives now. I, I don't need any more um any more time with on my own before when you were talking about plum you talked about plum being about the things that you were figuring out at the time did lockdown play a role in that and you know the 47 weeks that you spent in isolation oh yeah plum wouldn't exist unless i was in lockdown for six months and also because the dance of the industry stopped you know avatar said we're going to have five months off and i suddenly went nothing's going to happen in england i'm not going to be doing any telly and and I, I was thinking about writing as a TV show, but then I went, you know, I'm going to stop and embrace being a writer and, and, and wake up every day and write a book. And I, I was going through a pretty tough time there. Like I, I, a relationship ended, I got sick, I was on my own and it was rainy and, and wet and I was in a basement flat, there was rats. I thought, this is, this is low, man. But Peter Lum... Why this book is so moving is Peter Lum came to life and he saved me as much as I saved him. You know, we just went through together. I wrote this book for him and it was my lifeboat. It was just this thing that kept me positive. And, you know, creativity and connection it can do wonders and we, I'm lost without it. And it is my family, my friends and my lover sometimes. And, and it, Peter Lum was that, you know, and that's why I love him so much and I want him to do so well. 
We're talking about the travel that you haven't been able to do for the past two years and fittingly the next song that you've chosen is a cut from the album No Geography. It's by the Chemical Brothers. Why did you pick this one? You. I love your enthusiasm for your own song picks, Brendan. Well, shout out to my friend Tom, <laughs> just dropping a name there from the Chemical <laughs> Brothers. Um, towards the end, well, right in the middle, probably one of my greatest achievements was playing Galileo. Um, on the West End of London Theatre. Within two years of moving to London, I was in a title, you know, title role on the West End. Joe Wright, uh, the filmmaker who made Atonement um, and Cyrano, uh, he directed it. Um, Chemical Brothers did the soundtrack. Um, and I performed that at the Young Vic Theatre, the best theatre in the world, and um, in the round. And that's where I was spotted by Margie Simpkin to audition for Avatar and... Um, I became really good mates with Tom um, from the Chemical Brothers and we're hoping to work together again and he's just such a gifted man and he's just the sweetest guy. And um, free yourself, dance, um, you know, it seems like the lyrics, that's, that's all I want to do is free myself now and go and dance all over the world, you know, look at the environment, dance with some people, dance with, dance with life. Mm. Um, and I, I went and saw him with the Game of Thrones cast actually in the north of Spain and then I saw him again um, at Ali Pali in London and um, they've still got it. They're the best dance. Mm. This is the best dance music in the world still and it also harks back to my rave days. So, yeah, it's Chemical Brothers. Mm. You're listening to Out of the Box on FBI Radio 94.5. My name is Mia Hull. I am joined by Brendan Cowell. And that song was Free Yourself by the Chemical Brothers, a cut from their 2019 album, No Geography. Brendan, we've spent most of this show talking about the things you've written and the places you've been. I want to spend a bit of time talking about the places you're going and what you're going to make. Uh, Earlier, you touched on a project that might be coming to fruition in January. What was that? Oh, that's just something I'm trying to rustle up. But I'm, um, yeah, I'm writing a show for Amazon, which is an original show based on a, um, you know, an experience I had in New Zealand. a little comedy, cute little love story. And um, I'm about to act in a show called The Twelve, which is based on a Belgian show called The Twelve mm. that Foxtel and Warner Brothers are doing. Uh, so I'm about to star in that and I'll, I'll be here till next April and got a couple of other irons in the fire. But, yeah, I'm going to be just tanned and fabulous down in Bronte. If you want to find me, come up, have a high five. Yeah. You know, we can go for a Calippo, <laughs> whatever you want. Another thing on the cards for you is, you know, you will star as Mick Scoresby, the captain of a marine hunting vessel on Pandora. When the Avatar sequel kicks off, I think the first one we catch is in December next year, isn't it? Correct. Has filming finished for that? That's a huge trilogy. No, they're, they're filming some stuff now. Um, and, yeah, so I'm, I'm in two sequels. Mm. One will come out. Christmas 22 and another one will come out Christmas 24. Yeah, it's really exciting. And and the fact that, you know, the world 
the world might be able to fill cinemas and those big IMAX cinemas. And, you know, Jim, Jim manages to make these films that everyone can go and see, but underneath that action adventure, that kid-friendly action adventure, are some really big messages. And I think these sequels um, excel at that, you know, at, at what he does best. And it definitely felt as rigorous as it was, it really felt like we were part of something special when we were shooting it. And, you know, and it was just so wonderful to do and and especially being in an action movie. And, and every, every now and again, I'd be getting a bit relaxed with the jokes and through improvising and being, you know, my usual Larry and self. And I'd turn around and go, oh, shit, man, that's James Cameron. This is a set of Avatar, like, calm down. But he yeah. loved that. He loves Australians and he's a big kid, you know, and you can play. And and I, I actually, I don't know I've ever felt more comfortable on a set than I did on Avatar for some reason. You know, it wasn't intimidating. It was so fun. When I was set, spotted in, in Galileo, it was about finding an actor to command a big space and, you know, I'm on my pirate ship. And so because the way they shoot it, it's not so much about those mid-shot close-ups. It's, you know, there's cameras everywhere and they can digitally find you. So I could use my theatre skills um, on screen, which which was really good. And, um, yeah, I can't wait to see this one and, and all the tricks. Yeah, amazing. And, yeah, that one will be out, as you said, Christmas 2022. In the meantime, if we do want to catch any of your stories, Brendan, you've just published Plum. I'll put a link to that one up in the programs page on fbiradio.com. It's Brendan Cowell's latest book. Did you have anything you wanted to add, Brendan? I don't want to add anything. Um, I I really wanted to um, come on FBI and talk about the book, so I'm glad it's really worked out. Um, I've always been... I've done Fire Up um, for many years on on FBI and, um, yeah, subscribe to FBI, keep it alive. It's It's got the best music. Uh, it's still got the best music, I reckon, of any radio station in Sydney. So it's great to be here. Thank you so much for joining me on the show. It's been great having you. Um, you've chosen a song by The Tallest Man on Earth to end the interview with Brendan. Tell me about this one. The Tallest Man on Earth, who I, I believe is Swedish and he's very short. Um, which is the irony of his title, I guess. But he epitomises going overseas to me because for some reason, every time I go overseas, he's playing wherever I am. And I think I've seen him 11 times. Um, And what this guy can do with just his guitar and his voice, he doesn't need a band, um, is insane. Um, And he's just, he's a gorgeous looking man. And, you know, the title is my favourite of his song, um, songs and It's called Love Is All, and um, I think that's the best way to to finish this interview um, with the most truest statement of all, which is Love Is All. (laughs) Um, It's just a gorgeous, dark, resonant song. Chosen by Brendan Cowell on FBI Radio 94.5, this is Love Is All by The Tallest Man on Earth. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode. If you did want to find any of the things we've talked about, I'll pop them up on the program's page on fbiradio.com. You'll also be able to listen to this episode again, if you like, on the program's page or via the podcast, wherever you like. Stick around. After this song, Lil Scott is up for lunch. Thanks. Bye. Oh, I said I could rise from the harness of our gold. Here come the tears. Oh, that gold.
let them go. Oh, oh. 